point to Natalie for y'all. Uh, Natalie Fancher, where is she? I thought she was coming in. I know that. I know where she is supposed to be, but I want her in here. <laughs> Maybe we won't find her. Uh, track, track her down when you get a chance. Natalie Fancher is the new Kids Community Director. Um, we're thrilled about that, excited to have her. Um, we were doing a pretty broad search, and we had probably half a dozen decent candidates, uh, most of which were looking for a, a, a new job, right? Um, it's not our inclination to hire into really any ministry role as a job first. Passion is obviously best, and Natalie is passionate about kids. And when she finally threw her name in the hat, it was an easy, easy decision. We're thrilled to have her. If I could thank her personally in front of you, I would. Maybe she'll end up showing up at some point. But um, thank you, Natalie. Is she coming? No? Oh, gosh. She's so committed to her work already. Um, but at this point, don't we need to dismiss the kiddos? Yep, yep, it's time for kiddos to go. You guys can head back to the corner back there. They're waving you on. Yes. Uh, yeah, happy Mother's Day as well for me to you, moms. I appreciate you so much. Um, yeah, I know motherhood is difficult on many levels, uh, painful at times. Uh, I had a, I suppose my mom wasn't perfect, but you'll have to ask somebody else about the imperfections. I didn't see them. Still don't. Happy Mother's Day. Um, and I love you, mom. If you're watching, <laughs> I love you. Um, yeah, oh gosh, I can't even tell you. Uh, Natalie's addition to the staff is phenomenal in, in, in so many ways, so many ways. She's a prayer warrior, great mom, wife. Um, uh, you know, she's just f fabulous and thankful for her. Um, hey, we are um, in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments. We're working through the Ten Commandments. You can find those in Exodus chapter 20. I know most of you read Exodus one or two times a, a week. If you, if, you, if you can find it there in Exodus 20. And if you're not reading Exodus, you're probably reading Deuteronomy. I know that's another favorite. You can find them in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're built out a little bit more in Deuteronomy. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy um, about the fourth commandment, which is where we're going today. I'm just going to give this to you right up front, and then we're going to step back from it and work our way back toward it. It says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And listen to where he goes with this. Neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and he's talking to the Israelites who have uh, been uh, rescued from slavery, right? And they have really, when they first got the Ten Commandments, they were not very long into what will end up being a 40-year journey, and God gives them these instructions, these directions, these sayings. And he says, remember, you were slaves, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment. I told you I was going to back up from this a little bit, and it'll take a minute for for you to see how I'm going to resolve this next question into the Sabbath. But I want you to think about for a moment your most cherished relationship. You may have more than one. Think of one deeply held relationship. 
And the reason I'm asking you to think about a relationship is because what we are finding and what can be found as you look as deeply into the Ten Commandments as you can, they become less of a, a directive, prescriptive um, policy for life, and they begin to reflect the nature and the character of God and those who are in relationship with him. If you read the Ten Commandments, you come to understand who God is and what it is like to relate to him. I'll go into greater detail. The relationship that you value the most, the relationship that is most meaningful, let's say apart from God. I know some of you might go immediately there, and rightly so. Among humanity, <laughs> what is it that makes that relationship what it is? What, are the, what, is, what is essential about that relationship that makes it the most meaningful? Do you, do you mind telling me? Can you put it in a word? What, what is it about the most precious relationships that identifies it as such or is the character, the characteristic or the essence of it? Care, Care love, trust, trust transparency, transparency. Fidelity, consistency, did you say time? Anything else? Understanding. This deep stuff, right? All of that. Trust, understanding, it's deep. From, from cover to cover in the Bible, from the genesis of creation, through the Old Testament, into the Gospels, through the Apostles' writings, we find our God to be unlike any other God on record in many ways, but particularly as a compassionate father, even more a merciful pursuer, a God who wants to know you and be known by you. The God of all the cosmos, the sustainer of all things, the Almighty is intimate, intimate with his creation. He's not like Zeus who lives high on a hill somewhere with lightning coming out of his hands and fire coming out of his eyes. It occasionally comes and subdues his people. He's compassionate. He, he comes to our level. He wants to relate. He's intimate. What is intimacy? Intimacy is a close, familiar, usually affectionate, or loving personal relationship. He is the epitome, the completeness, the purity of the best relationship that you can imagine or the best one that you have. I've got pages here that I could go through that you could do this yourself. Just start reading through the Bible and look for this intimate, compassionate, merciful, pursuer God. In the garden, the creation of man, 
depicts God as a loving creator, intimately involved with his creation, a God who is present, engaged, and desires fellowship. He, he scooped up a measure of creation, like he had created all this. He scoops up some of what he's created, brings it close to his face, and breathes life into it. And there is man and woman. After they are disobedient in this beautiful space where the presence of God was evident, they hear the sound of the Lord as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You can get the picture of this relationship. And they hid from the Lord. God calls out to them, where are you? Where are you? He didn't ask that question because he didn't know where they were. Something had broken that intimacy. And he felt it. Where, where are you? And they speak and says, I heard you coming. I was afraid because I was naked. I was, I was ashamed and I hid. There was prior to that moment, no fear. There was nakedness with no shame. That's, that's intimacy, isn't it? It's a picture of intimacy. No fear, complete trust, vulnerability without shame. It's almost beyond our comprehension, this intimacy. Jesus reminds us of this intimacy when he, when he, when he says that, that, that I go after the, the one that is lost. Leave the 99 and go for the one. Even in this moment of broken relationship, of disobedience, of a lack of trust, uh, you, you could say infidelity. He makes them garments to clothe and protect their dignity. All through Exodus, uh, Genesis and Exodus, we read things like God saying this, between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, I'm paraphrasing here, I will keep my promise to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. In Exodus chapter 3, the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Like he's calling back to these moments when they were enslaved. And I heard their cries. I've heard them. I've heard the, the, the slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land. You can hear the heart of God. You can hear it in the Lord's Prayer when, he te- when Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. Like this is, this is a call to a father that is a provider. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Right? You can get this sense of a, of a, of a child appealing to the father even in that prayer. The peril the prodigal son probably goes without mentioning. God is portrayed in that as a loving, patient, forgiving, embarrassingly eager to welcome his son back home. The way this father behaves when the son is coming back down is socially almost unacceptable. 
He hikes up his drawers and runs after him. Cannot wait. We get this picture all through it. Jesus comforts his disciples like this. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? You know what it's like uh, to practice hospitality, whether you're good at it or not. When you invite somebody into your home, it's not a privilege that everybody gets. And he says, I'm, I have a home waiting for you, a home. I, I love going home. And you know where it is? Wherever my mom is, really. <laughs> you know, wherever my dad was, wherever they were, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be in that relationship. I wanted to be close. This is the heart of God. Even Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus refers to God as pater, uh, P-A-T-E-R. It is, it is father in the most loving way, the most connected way, the most compassionate way. When Jesus speaks of God in this prayer, he uses intimate language of a son speaking to the father. In his despair in the garden, he calls out, my God, my God, my father, my father. In his pain, he cries out to his dad. I mentioned the parable of the lost sheep. There's prayers when he's instructing his disciples, when he says, what kind of father, when you ask, when asked for a fish, gives a snake? That's not what the, God, that's not what the father is like. In his resurrection appearance, Jesus shares his familial, parental relationship with God, uh, with all of the believers. He says to Mary, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Even, I have, I can go on and on, Paul. He says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You're not a slave to fear. You receive the spirit of sonship and you cry, Abba, Father. This, it's, it's, it's a daddy kind of a, of a word. This daddy, father. you don't have any fear. You have a daddy who loves you, Paul talks about this. The Apostle John talks about the great love of the Father that he's lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. Cast your anxieties upon him, Peter says, because he cares for you. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, I, I kneel before the Father. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer reflects the depth and intimacy of the love of God for his children. To be filled to the measure of the fullness of God means to be filled with God's presence, his love, and life so that there's no room for anything else. It suggests, as I'm going on and on about here, deep and intimate relationship with God, fully saturated with his nature and his character. There may be no better way to capture it than the way Moses does in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. When Jesus tells these newly redeemed people, saved from slavery, he says, I take you to be my people. My people. I don't know how that strikes you. I'm going to try to illustrate this here. I have the privilege of being alongside two incredible Tammies most every day of my life. Both are grossly talented. They're inspired leaders. They're encouraging friends. I'm not confused about who is who. But sometimes when I say Tammy, people don't know if I'm talking about Tammy Botkin or Tammy Smith. I'm not confused. And I clear up the confusion completely when I refer to them. Because when I refer to my wife, I say, my Tammy. That is an utterly different relationship, right? When I say to, you don't even have to know who I'm talking about, but if I were to say this person and that person, and I said, my Tammy, you get the relational content, the intimacy associated with that phrase, my my Tammy. We are connected deeply, uniquely. God says, I take you to be my people, my people. There's a deep echo of this intimacy and relationship in that phrase. God says to you and says to me, like I say to my wife and to nobody else, she's my Tammy. Why am I going to all this trouble about uh, intimacy with God when we're trying to look at a, a Bible verse, a command that says, go to church on Sunday and don't work. Because we have got to stay in touch with the God who gave these sayings to Moses who gave these sayings, these directives to his people, to you. Too often we come to the 10 uh, commandments in the story of God's redeemed people and we are inclined to isolate them as some sterile mechanics for life. More than a prescription for relationship with God, In other words, what you must do to have relationship with God, we should see the commands as a description of a relationship with a certain kind of a God. In 
foreshadowing the weeks to come, we're going to see, you know, five through ten, the commands of things like this, right? Honor your mother and father. Think about the character of God and the nature of relationship that's being described. There is honor in relationships. Don't murder. There is dignity of life, a a deep value for every life. Don't commit adultery. There is fidelity. Don't steal. What's behind that? Provision. You You don't need to steal from anybody. You are my people. You don't need to steal. I will provide. Don't lie. Don't. You, can be, you can be utterly honest. You don't need to be ashamed. Don't, you're, you're mine. You're mine. Don't covet in your heart. You don't, you don't have to look everywhere else. I'm here for you. You are my people. You don't have to want for something that somebody else has. Where we're headed here and all of the commands together, they, they don't exist to ensure your relationship with God. They are ex- the expression of a relationship. Think of the Israelites. Think who he's talking to here. They have already been redeemed. In Exodus chapter 6, he says, you are my people. They don't have to earn their way into God's heart, into his life. They have been redeemed. He says, as a redeemed people, as my people, this is what my kingdom looks like. Every, every relationship has an ethos to it, right? Every relationship. Now, think about, not of your relationships, but other relationships that you see, if you had to describe them. Don't you find yourself capturing the ethos of a relationship when you see it, when you hear it? Like, I, there's people, I know relationships where the ethos is they're constantly bickering, constantly fighting, constantly tearing each other down. Some relationships are very sweet. Every relationship has a a way of uh, exposing itself to those around. God's saying, if our relationship is exposed, it should look like this. It will look like this. This is what flows out of our relationship because it is who I am and you are mine. (laughs) Are you with me? Are you with me? Are you with me? You might say that the first three commandments describe God and the last six describe the relationship of God with his people as he is worked out in the world. So back to this question. Imagine your most cherished relationship. 
And now think with me again about the most profound evidence of that relationship, the core substance of that relationship. And I think there is a word that encapsulates most all of the words I heard you say to me. Let me give you a hint. I'm going to review the first three commandments, right? Have no other gods before me. Remember what we realized? It says, don't let anything get in front of my face. Don't let anything get between our faces. You are my people. I am your God. Don't put anything in here. You get this sense, right, of this personal, intimate, connected God. Don't create any graven images. Don't let any image take the place of me or you. Right? You remember? Like, we don't want to take creation and set it up and worship that. God created it. He's like, don't, don't, don't worship what I created. Worship me. And remember, I created you in my image. We are the image of God. He's like, when you create an image, you put a, you put a graven image, but you put an eye up there that's replacing me. It's also replacing you. Don't do that. Don't put anything between our face and remember who I am and who you are and that we are connected. Don't carry my name in vain. Eric was brilliant on this last week. Always walk in sincere and genuine accordance with the redemption that is yours. He constantly told the Israelites, I have redeemed you. You are my people. Why are you walking and talking and behaving like you're not my people? You are my people Walk and talk and be that way. Understand, in a sense, that the, the nature and the certainty of our relationship, God says. Don't get anything between our faces. Don't put anything in between us. And remember who we are. And then what comes next? We have this wonderful, beautiful picture of this intimate, pursuant God that loves us, that has redeemed us. What must come next? What so beautifully and wonderfully follows these first three sayings? Rest. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. On it, do no work, nobody. Pull everybody into this, even your animals, your servants. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that your Lord, the God, brought you out of there. Remember who I am. Remember who you are. Remember who I have made you to be and rest. Live there. It is critical for all that comes next. When we started the Ten Commandments, one of my thoughts was, why doesn't rest come at the end of it? Why isn't it, why isn't it tenth? Because we can't make it through five through ten if we're not at rest in the first three. No chance. 
the life that God is calling us to and the remainder of the commandments, the relationship that he is calling us to is utterly dependent on us having this first part locked, loaded, deeply put within us and we are at rest there. True rest is much deeper than a day off, a healthy sleep pattern, or an ability to relax, all of which are good things. They are good things. But God is calling us to something much deeper than that. God's entire design of creation and us, part of creation, rest is at the core Rest threads through the Bible narrative from cover to cover, just like the intimacy of the relationship that we have with him. In a sense, like I'm saying, rest defines the relationship. Let that sink in for a minute. From cover to cover, we have this picture of God coming near, pursuing, gathering us in, making us his people and the primary characteristic of that relationship that, that we are to enjoy and participate in is, is rest. How many of you, including me, I already, the answer to this is no, we don't do that. I'm setting up this question. I don't mean to set you up for failure. Uh, when someone says, tell me about Christianity, do we say, it's just a place of rest? <laughs> no. It should. I'm not sure what would be more compelling, more inviting than that statement right now in our world. Is the best thing a Christian can do get stirred up in the ways of the world or to be at rest within it. Within it, we live in it. <laughs> we are called to, to serve and to minister and to reach and to go and to pour our lives out. Rest is at the center of it though. And if it's not We've got to get there. You know, in Genesis, when creation is happening, it doesn't go like this. It was morning and then it was evening. And this, and it was morning and it was evening and this. It goes, it was evening and then it was morning and this. And it was evening and it was morning. What is that? Sleep is first. Rest is first. The first day the humans experienced, like all this creation, then they were created, then what happened next? Rest. There's no mention of evening and morning after that. The cycle in the evening and morning days, rest, and then that, it is like, oh, well, that just keeps, that, there, that just keeps going. Rest comes immediately following the creation of man and woman, and it never ends. 
I'm telling you, it's throughout Scripture. The Passover reflects rest when they, when they uh, practice that um, feast. They ushered in God's rest. That's in Exodus 12, Exodus 16. When God delivered the manna, he was saying, look, I will provide for you in your rest. In Exodus chapter 31, the sign that they were still keeping uh, the covenant with God was their ability to continue to remember the Sabbath. We just looked at, at Ezra and Nehemiah and that whole process of rebuilding the temple. And do you remember why it ultimately failed? They didn't honor the Sabbath. It all came apart. And then Jesus arrives. And what does he say when they hold him to account to have been healing on the Sabbath? He says what? I am the Sabbath. What? I am rest. It's at the core of the, of the whole narrative. This intimate, loving, compassionate, pursuant relationship of God, and that relationship is defined by rest. God's design has rest at the core of it, and it includes you. And look around the world. Everyone is in search of it. Everyone is in search of rest. It's why we go to counseling. It's why we're trying to figure out uh, our sexuality, our identity, our gender. It's why we pursue political power. It's why we want financial independence. We, we're looking for all these ways to get something that will cause me to finally be personally at rest. If I could find out who I am, I would be at rest. If I, if I could have enough, I would be everything <laughs> Everything that is chaotic and crazy in the world around us is a pursuance of what we can find only in one place. Of course we're pursuing rest. We were built for it. God is at rest. Did all that work? Six days, seventh day, rested, goes on. Creates all those things, man, and create rest goes on. It is, the, it is the nature of God is at the core of us. It is the core of any of your good relationships. What is trust if it's not rest? Right? What is acceptance? What is understanding? What is intimacy if it is not rest? The same is true of God. God is at rest. And we find our rest in him. Jesus was at rest. We see it throughout the Gospels. And he is at rest. You remember Paul's prayer to the Ephesians? I pray that the eyes of, the heart, of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, right? Inheritance, this sort of depiction of, of father and children in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father because he's done. And he's at rest. 
He's sitting at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. He is now and forever at rest. God is at rest. Jesus was at rest, is at rest, and is our rest. It is in Jesus that we find our way back to relationship with God and into that space. We are redeemed not by being pulled out of Egypt. We are redeemed by being pulled out of our own slavery to sin through Christ, and we are in his good graces because of Jesus. Listen, as Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, and God raised up us up with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and what? Seated us with him. In the heavenly realms, we're sitting too. In Jesus, we are at rest. God is at rest. Jesus was at rest, is at rest, and is our rest. God raised us up with him, seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, express in his kindnesses to us in Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. We rest in Jesus. When I heard the worship team talking about God singing over them, my mind immediately went to this picture. Why will be obvious. (laughs) I pictured myself laying down, face down, comfortably, you know, like this. And Jesus, I don't know if I can... For those of you online, I'm going to be gone for just a couple minutes. <laughs> he is down here on his hands and knees, singing to me. I don't know what a God lullaby would sound like, but it's like that for me. Songs that remind me that I am enough, that he loves me, that I'm his, that I'm, he is mine. I don't know what that song lyrics are, what those song lyrics are, but I sure can imagine the setting. I'm at rest, and his voice is soothing and restful. And out of that space, we move into the rest of the commandments. The first three commandments lead to Sabbath. The next six after four lead to Shalom, where all things are put back the way they should be. Imagine a world where there was not only no murder, that you weren't murdering, that you weren't lying, but everybody else was not doing those things either. Can you imagine if, if there was no stealing, no murdering, no lying? That's perfection when it comes to relationship. You don't, even ha- you don't have to lock your door. Any of them. You don't, you don't have to do it. You, 
you don't have to protect yourself from harm. Can you imagine that? If everybody finds their way back to the rest of God and exhibits his character out of that relationship into the world, we're in heaven. We've found our way to shalom. We, what's next is that we actively rest in the midst of a restless humanity. I'm going to leave you with this picture, literally. The storm on the Sea of Galilee painted by Rembrandt. I have this hanging in my office. I'm sure you can't make that out hardly at all if it's on there. I would look it up online. He does an amazing job of capturing the storm of life and the calmness of Jesus in the center of it and the craziness of the disciples around him. Matthew covers it like this. He got into the boat and disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping in the middle of a storm. The disciples went and woke him up saying, save us, we're going down, we're gonna drown. He says, you have so little faith. Why are you afraid? Why aren't you resting? I'm right here. He got up, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. He's in control. It was completely calm. Where Jesus is, there is rest. Where Jesus is not, there is chaos. There is a storm. And we are called into it, not out of it. Abundant life is a life of rest rather than a life of fear where we are continuously living out the character of our relationship with God and inviting others, everyone, including our animals, in so they can live it out too. Let me invite you to Jesus, the one that bought, paid for your rest, let me invite you to receive it from him. And let me invite you into the relationship that you were designed for with God to rest in your own heart and soul and in the storm that is the world around us. God, it's almost beyond our comprehension to be able to rest in the way that you describe that we can, but we want to lean in. Would you sing to us the lullabies that are necessary for us to have confidence in who you are, to remember you've got it. Thank you, God, for the pathway that is Jesus to that rest. We are literally eternally indebted. God, help us rest in Jesus' name. Amen.